Good morning, everyone. And thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedules to join us uh, this Thursday morning as we launch uh, the latest issue brief from the Africa Center here at the Atlantic Council uh, by my good friend Pierre Engelbert, uh, Congo Blues securing Kabila's, uh, scoring Kabila's uh, rule. Uh, we didn't plan the, this launch to be occurring at a moment when uh, there's such great drama and going on uh, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, but I, it's in a way it's appropriate and uh, uh, that we're convening this, uh, this morning uh, on that. Uh, I'm not sure if many of you saw the um, New York Times Jeff Gettleman's article uh, on the crisis there. Uh, there was a rather interesting, uh, talk about in, in turning things on their head, there's a rather interesting quote from Laurent Mendy, the uh, Minister of Disinformation of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, uh, in which he said that uh, he didn't know why we, uh, the international community was pushing uh, Joseph Kabila to respect the Constitution and leave at the end of his term of office. He said, if that happens, and the quote was, we'll have confusion, we'll have rebellions, we'll have wars if he leaves office. Uh, I think, uh, uh, the best response to that is uh, this excellent report which Pierre has uh, written for, uh, for the Atlantic Council, and we're very pleased to launch, which uh, goes into uh, great detail and points out actually the uh, crisis of governance that has occurred uh, during Joseph Kabila's tenure uh, in the presidency of the Congo and how uh, actually the exact opposite to uh, Laurent Mendes uh, uh, spin on the world is likely to happen. We're very delighted uh, uh, this is again partner with our uh, good friends at Unite for Africa's Democratic Future uh, presented here by its president and executive director uh, Rick Gittleman who will respond to Pierre's report and so I do the, this comes in a series we had a report uh, two months ago by Gerard Prunier uh, reminding us on why Congo matters, and copies of that are available uh, uh, for those of you who haven't seen that report. And this is the we view this as the natural segue to that, having laid down the mark on why this country, the second largest in Africa in area and the largest in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, why this country of extraordinary wealth, uh, not just in mineral resources, but in human resources of its people, why this country matters, uh, we thought the next logical step would be to look at uh, where we've been in this journey, uh, this country, since uh, uh, the restoration of peace, the adoption of the Constitution, and the uh, decade-long elected, or at least election-like event, to quote my good friend, Ambassador John Campbell, rule of Joseph Kabila, uh, where governance stands in that country. So delighted today to have uh, kicking us off, the author of the report, uh, Pierre Engelbert. He's the Russell uh, Smith Professor of International Relations and Professor of African uh, Politics uh, at Pomona College in California. Uh, Pierre's been a good colleague. He's collaborated before with the Africa Center here. And he's the author of several books, uh, my favorite among which is Africa, Unity, Sovereignty, and Sorrow, uh, uh, a great study of sovereignty or uh, or at least the juridical sovereignty in Africa 
and its effects. And after Pierre uh, lays out his, uh, his findings in, in this report, which uh, we have Rick Gittleman, uh, the, as I mentioned earlier, President Executive Director of Unite for Africa's Democratic Future, someone who's actually been involved in Congo since his stint in the, pa the Peace Corps in 1977 there, and, and over the years has been back and forth numerous times, and like many, bitten with the Africa bug, uh, and uh, most recently being there uh, as a Senior Vice President for Freeport McMoran, uh, Africa, responsible for a whole range of uh, uh, legal affairs, community development, and labor issues uh, in the DRC, and uh, most recently just there uh, two months ago, two months ago, uh, and so, uh, and you can catch us up on some of the recent developments as well. So without further ado, let me turn it over to you, Pierre. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Good morning. Thank you very much, Peter. I appreciate uh, um, the introduction, and I appreciate the opportunity to uh, have been able to, to write this report and, and work on it. So thank you so much for, for that. And I want to thank uh, Kelsey Lilly for helping with the uh, editorial and production process. It was really a, a joy to, to work with all of you. And I want to thank you all for coming. Um, I appreciate this opportunity. I've worked on Congo for um, about 15 years. And when Peter asked me, would I do an issue brief for the Atlantic Council, I thought it would be a great opportunity to, to take stock of where things had gone since I started really when, when the war was still going on. And, and I thought it would be a great opportunity to, to look back and, and really to focus on governance and really how, how is Congo governed? How, how does you know, the practice of government, the actual uh, management of the country uh, take place? And so I tried to identify a few themes that maybe surfaced through this period. And by the way, these 15 years have all been Joseph Kabila uh, in different uh, incarnations. Uh, as, his, as his father's successor, as a transition leader, as a democratically elected leader, and, and, and soon uh, maybe not democratically elected leader. And so um, I thought it would be interesting to, to um, identify a few big themes. So then in the report, I tried to identify different dimensions of governance. And the first one that I single out is, is confusion. And I go to Congo quite a bit, and I study Congo carefully, and I'll be honest with you, a lot of the times I'm not sure I fully understand or, I, or know what's going on. Um, so there's, there's a lot of confusion in terms of what policies are in place, what laws are valid, what um, contradictory uh, um, legal texts uh, prevail over others, what institutions are in charge of what, uh, um, et cetera. Some of that is part of being a weak state. Of course, you know, there's limited capacity in Congo, and so certainly confusion comes from, from, from weakness. So it's not all engineered. But to some extent, it serves the regime uh, fairly well to entertain uh, confusion and, and to reproduce it. So the whole issue of whether Kabila is staying on or not has been going on for a few years, and it never was clarified one way or the other. And to some extent, the, the regime capitalized on that and, and you know, does not deny whether he wants to stay or not, does not deny that they will uh, uh, violate the constitution or not, but uh, leaves things ambiguous. And I think that's, that's the, uh, it's probably a fairly rational move for a, a, an otherwise weak regime uh, to, to entertain that confusion. Another dimension is, for example, the, the decentralization. The, the 2006 constitution introduced a highly decentralized uh, regime that came from the, you know, the whole uh, inter-Congolese dialogue and the, the transition period as a way to correct the excess of the previous regime 
but then it was very poorly implemented uh, with only a few of the laws passed and some laws contradicting each other and the transfers of resource never fully taking place like they should. Um, and you know, when I did field work with uh, my colleague Emmanuel Casongo in, in five provinces to, to research decentralization, we found that a lot of the local uh, authorities did not really know what, what the legal texts were, what their prerogatives were, whether you know, the, the 2006 or 2008 law prevailed, or the one that Kabila Fader passed in the late 1990s, or the, the, the decentralization law that Mobutu tried to implement in the late 80s. So all this uh, creates some sort of multiple layer sedimentation of legal texts that people uh, uh, get very confused about, and that really limits the agency of, of uh, uh, people at, at the local level in, in, in Congo. Um, so confusion is a big part of the of the game, and then you know suddenly then the regime will take uh, action. For example, in 2015, after uh, waiting forever, then then uh, Kinshasa implemented the partition of exist some existing provinces into additional provinces, which was in the 2006 constitution. It was meant to happen by 2009, but they hadn't done anything about it. But when it looked like uh, Moïse Katumbi and some other uh, politicians might uh, switch to the opposition, then it became convenient to quickly act and to, uh, uh, for example, break down Katanga in four other provinces, uh, and by, thereby undermining the, the capacity of some of these opponents to, to stand to the regime. So they're quite capable of taking action when they want to, and just like with the 2010 uh, revision of the constitution that, that went from a, a two-round presidential to one-round presidential uh, election. So that's one dimension, confusion. The second one uh, is uh, dithering and, and, and the, use, the relentless use of dialogue. Um, um, dithering first, there's, there's not much happening in terms of actual governance, in terms of running the country. Um, there's not a lot of uh, uh, proactive um, evidence of, of, um, of management. So for example, uh, there hasn't been a census since 1984. And that's um, the only census that ever took place in Congo <coughs> and the Mobutu. Nothing since then. We know there's been a need for a census since before the, the end of the transition. They've had 10 years to do it. They haven't, you know, they, every now and then there's a big conference about launching the census, but it, nothing takes place. Same thing with the, um, the updating of the uh, voter registry. So now the government says, you know, we, we, are, we, can't, we can't stick to the schedule of the elections, but it's not like they didn't know this was coming. Kabila has been in power for 10 years. You can set up in place some, some sort of mechanism whereby these things get updated on a regular basis. You can actually do a census. Um, the donors were willing to work on the census. Same thing with the census of civil service. It hasn't happened. So there's not a strong desire to actually um, deliver effective governance. Uh, but instead, there's a permanent use of dialogue. So the, 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 the Congolese are addicted, I think, to some extent, not just the, the regime, but everybody, to, uh, to, to dialogues. And as you know, there was the, you know, starting in the 1990s, there was a national sovereign conference, which is the first opportunity that the Congolese really had to kind of take stock <coughs> of their regime. Um, and then there was the uh, inter-Congolese dialogue, and then there was the, um, the three-year transition with the constitutional uh, uh, draft, the constitution drafting. And uh, then after that, you've had several ad additional instances of dialogue, including in 2014, the Concertation Nationale. And then now, what are they talking about? Mostly the government goes around saying we need to organize a national dialogue. Well, I'm not sure what you want to talk about anymore, or what the point is to talk about it, but there is that, that, that uh, propensity to, to govern by dialogue, but not really to govern, to just reproduce things and maintain some sort of uh, uh, equilibrium uh, with lack of action through dialogue. So that's something that I kind of think is, an, is, a, is a pattern with Congolese politics. And I, just, I don't just blame the, the current government. I think the Congolese elites 
have, uh, have some issues with that. And it's a way of keeping people together, but it prevents you from really taking significant action at times. And then there's the, um, what I call governance by absenteeism and delegation. So, so Kabila is not a very um, public figure, not a very, um, you know, he doesn't come up front and, and take leadership. He's not charismatic. He's not giving people a sense of direction. <laughs> to some extent, he, he plays on his weakness. He's a, he, you know, he has a difficult position, so he waits people out. So it, it makes sense for him to sit back and let everybody, you know, make, make their pronouncements and commitments, and then uh, Kabila sees where, where the, uh, the chips might fall. Um, but also, you know, even though he's very good at staying in power, at reproducing, it's not clear that he has uh, what it takes to be actually a, a, a governing uh, leader. Instead, the, the country tends to delegate a lot. So um, security, of course, is delegated to a large extent to MONUSCO. Uh, you know, development uh, policies are delegated to donors, to international and local NGOs. Education and public health is largely delegated to, to church organizations. And so de facto, you have hybrid governance where the, the the central government delegates a lot of, of its responsibilities to other groups um, and thereby exonerates itself from, from its lack of capacity uh, at doing these things. So all that is kind of the, you know, it's a perspective of what they're not really doing or how they, they fail to kind of reach the level of governance that we might expect of a, uh, uh, of a decent, plausible government. But then things get worse when you see what they actually are doing. And, and the big thing that the government is doing, to put it very simply, is theft. Uh, and, and this is not new. Congo really, I think, has, has been an enterprise of theft ever since its creation. I mean, Congo was set up as the institutional facade of, 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 of stealing and, and predation from the, the days of Leopold. And, and to a large extent, Congo has failed to reform itself from that, uh, whether under Belgian colonization, under Mobutu, and now under Kabila. Now, there was significant hope in 2006 that we could turn things around and Congo could transform itself into a different kind of country. But when you look at the behavior of, of both the top elites uh, uh, squandering uh, the assets of the country uh, in, in terms of, of uh, land and, and mineral resources and, and engaging in all sorts of, of shady deals and all the way down to the, the lowest authorities, you know, I get stopped frequently uh, uh, in Kinshasa uh, by police and the police are, you know, are expected to uh, impound a certain number of vehicles per day so that the, the officers can negotiate the release of the vehicle. Why is that? Because the officers themselves are expected to send money back up to those who appointed them there, what the Congolese call the politics of rapportage, reporting uh, resources upstream. So, you know, typically if I'm, if I'm in traffic in Kinshasa and we're stuck there, then, you know, the police will go around and, and sometimes you even hear Mundele, the white guy, you know, so they're calling each other like the third car over there. There's a white guy in there which promises uh, uh, <laughs> probably more significant uh, uh, returns. And so then I know it's my turn and we're going to be pulled to the side and we're going to be told that we change lanes without a blinker. Like, what? we didn't see any lanes. But anyway, so that's, you know, so to some extent, so it happens at all levels, right? So the state is understood as um, a mechanism of appropriation of resources. And, and it goes from the top to, to the bottom. And, and in part, and this is the next point, that's part of a politics of patronage that people really are appointing positions of authority with the understanding that they will help themselves, but also that they will reward those that appoint them there. And so we have a duality of institution. You have a formal system with you know, checks and balances, with a judiciary, a, a legislative, executive, with administration. And there has been some progress. There's some higher degree of transparency, some limited higher degree of public service. So, some, some things have taken place, but I think still below a threshold of effective governance. So you have that formal system, and next to it, you, you have a very deeply embedded system of patronage that has not uh, uh, diminished. And in fact, to some extent, has, has kind of reclaimed uh, uh, preponderance over the last few years. 
And then finally, there's repression. And, and to, be, to be honest, the system, the Congolese regime, has been repressive for some time. And if you look back, you know, remember in 2007, Kabila bombed Jean-Pierre Bemba's house. I mean, it, there was violence right after the election there. Now we could say you know, he was trying to assert his authority, and, and maybe people were forgiving then. But in 2007, 2008, there was significant violence against Bundudia Congo in the Bakongo province. Um, and then you had you know, violence in uh, the elections in uh, 2011. And then there was you know, 100 people who were launching a coup but with just machetes were, were killed in 2013. And this is all setting aside violence in the East, where you know, my, my groups are instrumentalized by Kinshasa to a large extent. And then you've had violence in, in, uh, in Katanga. So, so the regime, you know, the, since early 2015, I think that violence has increased. Um, and the, the degree of repression has increased. But I think it has been uh, part of the, um, the DNA of this regime for, for some time. And most recently, of course, as, as uh, some degree of, of coalition has taken place among opponents, I think there's a greater sense of uh, um, concern by the incumbents, and they are more, uh, they've been more willing to resort to significant repression and harassment uh, of opponents. And so those are the, you know, the main dimensions. By and large, this kind of lack of effective governance and then using of the state as a resource appropriation mechanism, and then the willingness to resort to repression to, to maintain access to this uh, uh, very um, um, fruitful uh, avenue for accumulation. Those are the, the three main dimensions. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Pierre, for that. And I, ca I can't resist but asking, uh, since you're uh, academic and in the classroom, do we score as governance? Is, is this a D or an F? You know, my students will tell you I'm a generous grader. I, I, uh -huh. I, I give a lot of A's because nobody ever complains about an A. Uh, <laughs> but. Um, so keeping with my generous um, uh, propensity, I'll give it a D. <laughs> Rick, let me turn it over to, to Rick Kettleman uh, uh, to respond to that and update us on some of the things going on. Sure. Um, Peter, thank you very much. I, I also <clears throat> want to just say, first and foremost, that uh, I very much appreciate the tremendous partnership that uh, United for Africa's Democratic Future has with the Atlantic Council. It, it helps us enormously uh, as a result of the partnership to be able to get out our, our, our message. We are a 501c3 corporation, and uh, without the, the, the partnership with the Atlantic Council, it would be that much harder. Um, I also want to thank Dr. Engelbert for what I consider to be a, an exemplary piece on current situation in, in the Congo right now. Um, <clears throat> my own background as initially back in the 70s as a Peace Corps volunteer then led me to uh, join a, a, a US law firm where I spent seven years in Kinshasa, uh, and then joined the mining sector and spent uh, another six or seven years in, in Katanga as a, uh, a senior vice president for Freeport McMoran. And I have, in my view, a full 360 degree appreciation for the Congo, for the people of the Congo, for how it's governed, for how it impacts businesses and, and people. And, uh, I think it was that passion for a country that I think has an enormous potential that has driven me to found the United for Africa's Democratic Future and, and work so hard for what I think is so fundamental to the benefit of the Congolese people, which is democracy. Um, they have not known it. They have not had it. They have not had really the benefit of, of good governance since the very beginning. And one of the things that I wanted to remark on 
that uh, I think that uh, Dr. Engelbert pointed out quite well in his, his paper is that while the rest of Africa is enjoying a relative boom in terms of growth, creating middle classes, and you see uh, some statistics that, that indicate that over the past 20 years, one billion people have been lifted above the extreme poverty level in the world, many of them in Africa. You, you cringe when you see the statistic in Dr. Engelbert's paper, which says that 80% of the people in the Congo today live below the extreme poverty level. That's, that's, that's a, a horrendous shame on the government of the Congo, and that absolutely needs to be changed. Um, <clears throat> I think that that's a, a very important point that was made, and I want to I wanna stress that uh, as well. But I think that good governance can change these, this situation, and it can change it fairly quickly, because someone who has spent a lot of time in Congo knows that the Congolese people want change. They want to do well. They want to be in a system that allows them to have opportunities, just like everyone everywhere around the world. When they're denied that, they then resort to whatever it is that takes to, to put food on the table and survive. That's the system that's in place in Congo right now. That's what, in fact, the Kabila government is, is, is put in place is, or, or has kept in place. And that, what I, in my view, needs to change uh, as, as quickly as possible. Um, let me talk a little bit also about something that's near and dear to my heart, which contributes to I think the, uh, the, the, the failure of the Kabila regime at this point, and that is the business climate. Um, I spent six years dealing with the government in many capacities. There were claims after claim. This, is, this goes to your point, uh, Pierre, about, about how there's really not a central control uh, at, the, at the top, and, and everyone is doing their own thing at the mid-level. We would get, at, at the mining company, audit after audit after audit after audit for basically the same things. And we were always found delinquent in, in some thing, whether it was uh, we hadn't paid this particular tax at this particular time when we were supposed to, or uh, we, they calculated uh, um, um, taxes in a way that we hadn't calculated them. It was all geared off of a system, which was a legal system, which called for penalties to be shared by tax assessors. Now think about this for a second. This means that the people who are your mid-level bureaucrats aren't being paid a, a living wage. So what they do is they take advantage of this law where 40% of all the penalties, penalties that are assessed get shared amongst the people who are assessing the penalty. So you've got government bureaucrats who then come to your, 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 your factory or your plant, your place of work, and they find something wrong. Or they know that something's wrong because somebody has told them, and they sit on it for a year or two, and then they come back and they multiply the fines by, you know, three or four hundred percent. So at the end of the day, I can I can tell you a true story. We were once assessed a fine of six hundred million dollars by the tax assessors, and they said, "Don't worry. If you pay just twenty million of it, it will all go away." Really? $600 million fine, and if we pay $20 million of it, it will all go away. Of course, we wound up spending 18 months, two years fighting it, and ultimately wound up paying zero, because that's what was actually owed. But the point is that this penalty-driven system gears people to move in ways which are counterproductive to good governance. It's, it's productive to them individually, but it is a law that, that is, is little understood outside of the Congo, it is very well understood by anyone doing business in the Congo. 
especially any company that's doing business under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, you, you need to be very, very careful about this. So <clears throat> all of those penalties we fought very, very hard. And we, we wound up at the end of the day being known as, as, uh, as, as a company you don't want to necessarily go to to, um, to try and extract uh, extortion from. But it was a painful process for six years. Matter of fact, I lost most of my hair during that process. <laughs> No, that's not true. <laughs> um, that's how I lost mine, too. <laughs> oh. um, let, me, let me also move on to something that uh, Dr. Engelbert talked about, which is the, uh, the, the slippage, the, the political process. I, I, I agree completely that one of the things that we've seen is, on the one hand, President Kabila saying, well, I'm going to follow the Constitution. Of course I'm going to follow the Constitution. That's what we have it for. On the other hand, his plan is masterful. He does nothing. I mean absolutely nothing. Other than in January of 2015, he called for a census. Well, we need a census, right? Having a census would take two or three additional years, and it is simply a non-starter. So what happens? People take to the streets. Many people are killed in the ensuing riots. That was a very costly lesson for President Kabila, and he quickly backed off of the census uh, argument. Um, he has, he has uh, I think, the decoupage, the, the decentralization um, uh, that he put in place. Cynically, it was designed for one thing. Yes, it was in the Constitution. And it would have been, I think, a very, very appropriate step to take if you had passed all the laws, if you had allocated resources to those provinces. One of the things that was was called for was the retrocession of 40% of all the revenue raised in a province would go back to the province. So according to the provincial minister of finance in Katanga during the, the mining boom in 2010, 2011, that would have been about 40% of about $1.8 billion. Okay, I don't have a calculator with me right now, but I know that the amount that they received, which was $12 million, is not quite 40%. And, and once the 40% came into the province, it then was allocated to the cities first and then to rural areas. So there was a plan in place. The only thing the government didn't do is fund it. So the plan failed miserably. And, and decentralization today is, in my view, a cynical play just to undercut the power of the certain provincial governors that had power, Governor Katumbi being probably the, the most important of which. Um, <clears throat> Once, once that happened, his province of Katanga became four much smaller provinces. Now, when you can't fund 11 provinces, which they had before, how are you going to fund 26 provinces? The answer is you can't. It's, it's, it's a lot harder. So I think that this, this, is, this is another cynical, in my view, a cynical attempt by Kabila to simply delay elections because it creates confusion. It creates chaos. Um, I think that the the arrests and harassments that have taken place, some of them quietly, some of them not so quietly, over the past really year to, to, to 15 months has been significant. Um, you know, Ivano here and uh, somebody else there, and, and, and soon it be there becomes a pattern. And, and it becomes a pattern of harassment against the opposition. And the opposition is anybody who stands in the, in the everyone who supports free and fair elections. Free and fair elections is sort of the uh, code word for anti-Kabila. So I think that um, once you see some of this and you see the violence that, that has been starting, 
uh, which has really not, it's, it's not just this week or the week before, it has been going on for, for quite a while against supporters of all of the candidates uh, and their relatives. This intimidation is, is, uh, is intended to put the elections on the back burner. So far, it has not, it has not worked. Um, you know, and now, now we're seeing in Katanga, uh, I think perhaps the most cynical of, of all scenarios, which is you have perhaps the most popular candidate, the biggest threat to, to Kabila uh, <coughs> and his legacy, and he's being harassed by really actually bizarre claims of fomenting uh, an American mercenary outfit that's come in to, to take over uh, the country. Um, it, on its face, it's, it's, it's a bizarre claim, and yet here you have it. I mean, there's, he's appearing in court every single day. There are tens of thousands of people supporting him in, in, uh, in, in uh, Katumbi and Lubumbashi, yet the, uh, the charade continues. <clears throat> so to those people who, who believe that there is open political space for, for dialogue, um, that's just fiction. The, there's no, uh, Kabila's dialogue has always been an attempt to delay things and keep things from actually leading up to elections. And, and now the proof is that the dialogue, there is no interest in dialogue anymore. There is, however, I think a dialogue that should be had. And that dialogue is something that, the, uh, that I would encourage the opposition to, to get behind, which is a call for a dialogue or a, a, a round table to talk about the election timetable and the financing of the election in a very positive way. This would in, encourage international, the international community and governments to actually get behind something that could be, uh, I think, um, quite positive. Would, do I think that President Kabila and the government would attend it? Probably not. But at least calling for it and having it would show that there's a direction that the, that the opposition is proposing to actually do something besides nothing, which is what the, the president is doing. So I think we're really at a, a, a crossroads right now. I think it's a very, very difficult time for, for Congo. I'm always optimistic, um, perhaps foolishly so. <clears throat> Even having been sp spent six years uh, as a senior executive in a mining company, I'm still optimistic. I think that uh, I think this country can actually come on the other side of this uh, exercise and, and actually be quite strong. And I think it can occupy the, the role of the, the leader in Africa, in agriculture, in tourism, in mining, um, that, that it should, as a country of, of 80 million people, the size of one third of the United States, with the, the talent that it actually has, if it put it to use, I think this would be a, an enormous success story. And I'm, I'm hoping that, that, to see that. Thank you, Thank you very much, Rick, <coughs> uh, uh, for that. Let me uh, pose a question for both of you. Uh, so what is, uh, we're now uh, the 12th day of May, so we're six months out from when elections are due. Uh, assuming, and this is an, a, a big assumption, assuming they're, uh, you know, maybe Kabila gets off on the other side of the bed one morning or is convinced that elections, should, or can we hold elections in that timetable? Well, it's not my, my specialty, but um, the voter registry has not been updated, and, and it was already out of date last time. So. A lot of people have died, and, and probably about five million uh, people have come have come of, of voting age. And so, without fixing that, there would be significant uh, disenfranchisement of, of quite a few people. So, 
given the um, the uh, complexity of, of this kind of policy, given the weakness of the uh, administrative apparatus, I, it's hard for me to imagine that they could actually do this properly even with donors' assistance in a few months. But I imagine, I mean, to some extent, if you wanted to allocate the resources and be serious about it, it's feasible. But I, in the Congolese context, I, I don't see this happening. Yeah. Um, I think, well, I, I certainly agree with the notion that it, it's feasible with enough money put uh, in place, but that's not going to happen. So I think that what you have to do is you have to take a look at the second best alternative, which is actually doing this within the constitutional time frame. I, I, I'm sorry, my bias is as a, as a lawyer, I, I'm, I'm fond of constitutions and following the, the law. And so I, I think that if they could do that, if they could actually uh, follow the constitutional mandates that are in place already, I think that would be a huge victory. So for example, on the 19th of December, the Kabila mandate is over. At that point in time, there is a, a vacancy in which the pre president of the Senate would take over for uh, the period of between 90 and 120 days, depending upon certain circumstances, to hold elections. Those elections then would be held 120 days at the, longer, at the, outs uh, at the outside from December 19th. Now, I think that you could actually do that if you started today you could actually get the voter registration in good enough shape. Would it be perfect? Probably not. But you'd get it in good enough shape so that you could do it within that time frame. And I think it's important to try and do it within that time frame, simply because that's what the law requires. That's what the president is obligated to do. So I, I think it's possible, but you have to start right now. Yeah. Can I add something yeah. quickly? You can do this without allocating some resources. And in last year's budget, the Electoral Commission at the end of the year, received only 25% of the amount that had been budgeted to it over the, for, for that year. So the, the very institution in charge of the planning, the roadmap of the implementation of the election, is being starved out of resources by, by the government. And of course, then the donors have cold feet in committing also when they don't see that, that kind of commitment from the government. In contrast, the, the cabinet of the president allocated itself 252% of its initial budget. <laughs> so just to, to give you an idea of how money gets reshuffled. So it's one thing to have transparency in the budget. That doesn't mean you, you live up to it. Yeah. So they're trying to, he's trying to, having starved, uh, having starved the SANI, the Independent Electoral Commission, he's trying to cite that crisis uh -huh. as a crisis one he, uh, he created by it's the budgetary decision. Now, Rick, you mentioned the the constitutional provisions for the president of the Senate to take over uh, on the 19th of December and hold the elections. There's been a lot of reporting and a little bit of no little confusion on uh, a ruling by the Constitutional Court. Do you want to? Uh, sure. I, I think the confusion actually was started as a result of a, uh, a Reuters article that came out and reported something I think indirectly, which said that um, the, the government's view that the, the Constitutional Court had issued an opinion saying that uh, Kabila was entitled to stay in power, the sitting president was entitled to stay in power until elections are held um, whenever they are. Now, you know, having read the actual draft opinion, now the draft has not come out yet. It is supposed to come out today or tomorrow, so that whatever, the, whatever has been out there is, is still subject to potential change, although I understand that it has been signed by the judges, just not yet. Uh, issued officially. So this is a, a leaked document of some kind. But 
I, I have a copy of it and I've read it. And that's not what the opinion says. The opinion is quite clear. It says that Article 70, line 2 of the Constitution says that the president shall stay in place for the period between uh, until, until there's a new, uh, a new uh, president sworn in. That is, the purpose of that was to hold the president, to, to maintain the continuity of the presidency of government between the election and the swearing in. Just like you have in this country, you have an election in November and you have a swearing in in January. Uh, once the election over, is over and CNN says that so-and-so is elected, there's not a new president. You have, to, you have to then go to January in order for there to be a swearing in. That's what this provision was for. It is being used by the pro-Kabila forces to say, well, if we don't hold an election, we can stay for as long as we want until the next election is held. Well, that's just not correct. That doesn't make any sense. It's not, there's no logic in that. Um, and if you look at the other provisions of the Constitution and you look at the opinion from the Constitutional Court, it's very clear. It says, look, um, the calendar's not changed. The election calendar, which is also a constitutional mandate, is not changed. So what it's simply saying is that between the 19th of December and the 29th, where the swearing-in should take place, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a, um, a continuity of the government, and the president president's continues. Once that happens, however, the vacancy provision prevails, and on the 20, at the end of the 10-day period, the, uh, the new, the new uh, president, who would be the president of the Senate, comes in and, and holds the, uh, starts to plan for the election. That's, that's the interpretation, I believe, that the, the Constitutional Court gave. Uh, one, one last question, then we'll open it up to uh, uh, a broader, uh, broader discussion. I think the, the pretty clear uh, case was made that the Congolese people, when they were asked for their opinion, when they approved overwhelmingly this Constitution, wanted a presidency of two terms, full stop. So there's the will of the people already. Pierre's report, I think, makes very clear that not only is it a constitutional matter, it's a matter of good governance given the D scorecard, uh, the generous D given for the, the 10 years of legal rule. Uh, uh, how does the international community, those friends of Congo outside, encourage this transition that, need, that legally, constitutionally, as well as politically needs to take place? How do we encourage it along at this point? Uh, other than obviously raising awareness of what we're doing here. You know, it's interesting that you bring up that constitution. The, the one time the Congolese really had a chance to speak about what regime they want was in the, when they voted on the constitution in, in 2006, and 84% of them said, yes, we want a highly decentralized regime with two terms, a presidential uh, system. And, um, you know, the government then now buys uh, pages in the New York Times saying that they really should stay in power. But, you know, they don't have a record to justify it, and they certainly don't have a, a, a popular endorsement of that. So uh, the only time you can really assess what, what the Congolese people wanted was in that constitution. So I think that, you know, I'm, as a scholar, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not a DC person, and I have mixed feelings about what we can do policy-wise. But as a scholar, I do think there's incredible value to precedent and to legal precedent. And I'm, I'm not particularly impressed with the potential opponents to Kabila, and I'm not sure whether the next person would run the place differently. But in terms of um, what we can do is, is help support the Congolese people who are being increasingly disenfranchised and have voiced what they wanted and aspire to democracy. But to some extent, 
now suffering from limited uh, liberties to express this, and also are constrained by you know material needs to to survive in the, in a, by reproducing a system that's essentially inimical to their to their own uh, uh, development and to uh, to good governance. So people participate and reproduce this system, but you know to some extent against their will. So I think that one thing we can do is certainly say that when you had a chance to speak, you asked for this. And we have not forgotten. And there's significant value to precedent. If we can actually have a peaceful transition according to the, the Constitution, when we can have alternation in power, um, if we can try to stick with that, I think that the long-term benefits might be significant. Even though in the short run, I'm not sure what regime comes out of it. But I do think there's something to be said for this kind of constitutional legal precedent in terms of uh, vesting and, and, and consolidating uh, democracy beyond the forms. The government is very good at playing on legal forms and, and sticking to the letter of, of, of text, but manipulating it. But this would really restore the spirit of the Constitution. Um, Peter, I think that from a practical perspective, the, the time is, is now to actually stop talking. Um, European governments and the United States have been talking for quite a while. There have been countless number of missions to Kinshasa advising President Kabila to step down pursuant to the Constitution and have a peaceful transition of power. That's been said by uh, Secretary Kerry. It's been said by the French. It's been said by the Belgians. It's been said by the EU in general. Uh, there have been resolutions in the EU and in the UN that support this notion. Now is the time to, in my view, because nothing has happened, to actually start considering, not considering, doing, implementing sanctions. And, and there are sanctions that are on the table that would actually have some, some teeth and some significance. Um, it's low-hanging fruit. No one's saying, let's put boots on the ground, because that's not, that's, not, that's not where things should go. On the other hand, you shouldn't reward someone for willfully violating their own constitution to the huge detriment of their people and say, fine, we'll treat you as a good trading partner or a good political partner. No, I, I think the time is now to actually put some teeth into this. Sanctions have been discussed in the Senate. They've been discussed uh, in the, in the uh, uh, State Department. They've been discussed in the executive branch. Now is the time to actually do something to continue to ratchet up the pressure to get, uh, to get Kabila to, to do the right thing. Thank you. Um, so um, uh, this is specifically for uh, PR, but uh, everyone can answer it. Um, so um, we've painted, you've painted, and both of you, all of you have painted uh, somewhat uh, a picture of the DRC, and then we've discussed what we would like to happen. Let's step aside from what we would like to happen. Can you paint your prediction? Not that I want to put you on the spot. What is your prediction for how this will evolve? Um, um, and then the second part of the question, um, what external actor has any chance of changing that prediction? And I don't mean specifically the United States. Uh, you could answer the United States. Pierre? All right, so um, if I'm right, then I hope you remember it. If I'm wrong, then, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, it was just a prediction. Um, so I, I, my, my impression is that um, they will do everything they can to stay. Uh, Kabila and his, his entourage. I think that uh, they have a lot at stake, and they, they, there's, there's a lot to be lost. 
And in a system like this, that's really, in the end, based on personal rule, no successor, even from your own clan, unless it's really a close family member, can really guarantee your property rights, can guarantee that you can maintain uh, what you have. So you can go abroad and keep as take assets with you. Apparently, Kabila does not want to do that. If you stay in the country, it's very hard to have anybody make a credible commitment to you that you'll be fine. So in the absence of that, it, it makes sense to try to stay as long as you can. So I suspect they will do everything they can to stay. And first, maybe the politics of the slippage, right, they have now, and then hopefully maybe arrange some sort of dialogue or conference that might revise the Constitution eventually and might create another legal basis for, for him to stay beyond the, the term. That's what I think they hope for. Now, the big question mark for me is the street, how, how far they can take this. And there's been significant mobilization over the last couple of years, and not from the traditional parties, not the old UDPS kind of thing. There's some, you know, uh, some grassroots mobilization, some unpredictable street mobilization, and then you have some new groups like Filimbi or, or Lucha, some groups that, that do not represent the traditional position, but really more like a middle class that's really frustrated by the lack of meaningful opportunities to, for advancement. And those are still very small groups and vulnerable, and the government has been very repressive against them. I, but I don't know how far they can take this. Uh, and, and the pushback, I think, will be, will be significant. And with the, you know, with the weakness of institution and the, and the tradition of violence, there could be a very high cost in the end. So I suspect that they will push as far as they can, and I would predict that there will be significant pushback. Now, the second dimension, I'll, I'll let my, my colleague... Uh, So the war, the war has a different logic. So Congo had sig significant amounts of war that derived from you know, politics in the East largely and things that involve Rwanda and Uganda. There, there was a different logic to that. Now there's still violence. As you know, there's something like 60, 70 different militia groups still operating in the East. I would put these two logics somewhat separately, but there, I suspect there will be violence at the level of um, street uh, demonstration and, and, and police uh, violence against those. And, and maybe that could, that could go further in terms of you know, uh, civil disturbance. But I, I don't think we're going to have a full resumption of warfare like we had before. But, but I could be wrong about that, yeah. Yeah, I, I, think, that, um, I think it's a really good question. Um, and my prediction would be that the opposition is going to do everything it possibly can to try and get the government to come to the table on this table ronde, the, the uh, idea of having a, a conference to discuss the specifics of the election calendar. Um, I think they're going to push hard on that. Um, I also think in the back of my mind that if Kabila hasn't budged now, he's not going to budge because of that, nor will he budge if the United States pushes him or the EU pushes him or the UN pushes him. He seems to be entrenched and doesn't seem to care. So maybe sanctions would have some effect, maybe they won't, I don't know. But at the end of the day, certainly street violence is something that is looming out there. You see the potential in Lubumbashi right now, where Moise Katumbi has called for peace to be held on both sides. You know, very peaceful protest is, is I, I, if you've been to Congo for, for any length of time, there really is no such thing as peaceful protest. It always devolves into something nasty. I don't really foresee the uh, warfare breaking out, but I do see civil unrest. And, um, and it, could, it could catch fire in a lot of different places because there's not enough uh, military to, to control it throughout a country the size of, of Congo. And that's a pressure point that I think Kabila cannot ignore. And I think that's probably 
I, I hate to say it, but it's probably the, the most persuasive card is the will of the Congolese people. Are they ready to put themselves out into the street? I don't know the answer to that. We'll see. I would just round it off by saying I agree with uh, both my, uh, my friends here and would say he's going to, my predictions, he's going to try to cling on. There will be this mobilization. And then this is the point where sanctions today are not going to, I think sanctions are important to send a very strong signal that our, our, our actions are where our, uh, our words have been, words going all the way up to the President of the United States who called Kabila last year and called upon him to respect the Constitution. But the sanctions where they will really kick in is when he overstays his constitutional mandate, when the streets are occurring, because then it eventually impacts his ability to pay the mercenaries uh, and you know, credit reports uh, of his hiring mercenaries in there. Those mercenaries aren't going to fight for him for no pay. Uh, his Republican Guard are not going to fight without pay, at which point uh, that's where the change is going to occur, when there's violence, unfortunately, in the streets, and when he's, the regime is because of sanctions, unable to pay these forces, at which point, you know, anyone sells life insurance, I wouldn't recommend uh, him being a good actuarial risk at that point. Uh, and at that point, we'll see something. It's an unfortunate way. We hope it doesn't get to that. But I think, you know, up to now, he's shown no indication of allowing an alternative path to. Peter, to let me add on one thing to you, because I think you said something very important. One of the, one of the problems that we have right now what they, the, the Congolese have right now is that their financial situation is dire. The, the low copper prices have resulted in uh, extraordinarily huge cash flow problems. The amount of, of product that's been exported is, is actually down from 2014. And the result is, of course, that the royalties and the tax revenue from the mining sector is way down. The result of that is that they have probably uh, something like five to six weeks of, of cash remaining, uh, and that's not a good position for the government to be in. So that, that points to your situation. They're going to have to stop paying people at some point, and that's going to be a real problem. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Niakwete. Um, Professor, I, you, you gave the Congolese government, um, if I understand correctly, a generous D. I would like you to grade the international community generally and uh, the United States, because it seems to me significant that we are talking here, the implication being even just raising awareness and getting ideas into the heads of policymakers is very important. And of course, I, I am biased because I think one of the reasons that the international community and the US, they are worried has not been effective, because I do want to see democracy, is because you look at the region. They, are, they have been rewarding uh, Kagame, and Museveni was just e elected under questionable circumstances. So my, my question is, uh, could you please say what grade you give the international community and the US, and because I think any change has to come from the US adopting policies across the region that will give them credibility. If you reward Kagame and then tell Kabila, do what I say, why would they listen? That's a great question. It's, it's, it's very fair. Um, I'm giving the international community an incomplete. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, I think that the main problem is inconsistency. I think you put your finger on something important. I mean, we're, 
the West and, and the United States particularly is not consistent uh, in dealing with, with regimes in Africa. And so democracy promotion is definitely one of our agendas, but we are, uh, we waver about it. And, and you know, you mentioned Kagame and you can look at Ethiopia, you can look at Uganda, and, and we, are, we are lenient in, in, in countries that have strategic or uh, political advantage uh, or, you know, for us. And so we, we, beat, we beat down harder on, on, on other ones. And so I think there's, I mean, so to some extent, I said it's inconsistent, but I'll take what I can get. And so, you know, um, it doesn't always make the U.S. very uh, legitimate in what it tries to do on the ground when people can see these inconsistencies. But at the same time, there's a certain degree of weakness with the incumbent regime right now in Kinshasa. And I think it's fair policy to push while you can. And, and you know, um, there's certainly stronger resistance elsewhere. So... And there's also inconsistency. So across the region, I think the other reason for the incomplete is inconsistency with, sometimes within uh, the U.S. government and within Western government. Different agencies have different agendas. And so if you go to Kinshasa, you, you might get a very different story at the USAID office from what you get at the embassy. And to some extent, the Congolese are, are very uh, aware of that and, and, of course, very sophisticated political class and can capitalize on that. And so I, I think that I mean, that's part of being a big, uh, powerful bureaucracy. But to some extent, it, it can undermine what we try to do at times, yeah. Uh, Dave Peterson, National Endowment for Democracy. Um, professor, to some extent following up on Nee's uh, question here, um, in your uh, book uh, that uh, Peter mentioned, you link um, African sovereignty, particularly in the, you know, using the example of DRC to recognition by the international community. I wonder if you would just, you know, apply that thesis to what's happening now in, in DRC. Does it still make sense? Um, so thanks for bringing that up. Um, the book makes an argument that's more, a little more abstract than what I'm discussing here with, with, with the specifics of Congo. And of course, it, the book tries to link the recognition African states, of African states and their, their juridical sovereignty with the, um, their tendency to dominate domestically and to use the law as a tool of oppression and domination. And, and, and I'm trying to argue that, you know, to some extent, the fact that we, de you know, through decolonization, we recognize countries that might not have had significant empirical existence afforded them a certain a capacity, even though they might not be able to do much for their citizens, a capacity to do much to their citizens or against them. So sovereignty is instrumentalized uh, through the law as an instrument of, of domination. And that's kind of widespread through societies in Africa and the states reproduce in their dysfunction through that. So that's the argument there. Certainly, Congo looms central to that, to that argument. And you can see now with the use of, of legal uh, forms, the use of, of uh, legal apparatus, how the state is really trying to instrumentalize its constitution, its, even its democratic pretense to, to control and dominate others. And you can see all the way through decentralization, I've done work in five provinces on decentralization, and you can see how local provinces that were originally meant to bring governance closer to the people and to be more transparent and accountable are reproducing the same pattern of, of uh, predatory behavior from the central state acting through their legal prerogative in ways that extract resources and do not produce services and essentially being um, immune from any kind of pushback and, and uh, working in an environment of significant impunity because of the lack of ownership of the institution at domestic local level. And so my argument is that when you trace that back, 
it goes out of the country to recognition to the UN to some extent. Even though there was a very positive benevolent agenda to try to empower weak states, I think it's largely backfired in giving local authorities a, um, a degree of uh, legal apparatus that allows them to dominate with impunity. Yeah. So I think it's relevant, but it's, it's more abstract than the case I'm trying to make today. Yeah. Doug Brooks had a... Doug Brooks, International Stability Operations Association. I wonder if you could just dive a little bit more into the role of the United Nations um, in, in this and whether they're just trying to keep a little bit of distance or if they actually are getting involved in trying to push along something positive. So for the UN, I would go for, um, they're taking the class for pass, no credit. So it's not a grade, it's just no credit. Um, <laughs> But, but the, so the UN has been very dysfunctional. Um, you know, MONUSCO is, is very big operation in Congo, and uh, and to be fair, the government has not made their life easy, right? So, for example, when they decide to to go after the FDLR and and to to get more proactive in the east, and the government appointed uh, uh, generals that had been uh, indicted, and you know that the UN could not work with, and so made it almost impossible for for MONUSCO to be efficient on the ground there. So, so. MONUSCO has not done very well, but certainly I empathize with the, the complexity of what they've encountered. The way I see it is that, um, in general, the government is trying to push back against the UN, push back against MONUSCO, and, and, and give itself as much breathing room as possible, and so keep them on the, uh, uh, you know, of, of balance. When things get bad, like when you have uh, M23, or when they have insurgencies that run out of their control, then they will quickly delegate the, the, the serious security dimension to, to MONUSCO and rely on them like the, the Force Intervention Brigade. Um, once that threat recedes, then they, they both dismiss MONUSCO and they dismiss the underlying uh, grievances that, that, that led to the issue. So the government is unlikely to really deal with the, the real fundamental problems in the East, such as land rights, such as uh, ethno-regional chiefdoms and, and, and uh, issues of citizenship. Um, and so MONUSCO is brought in when, when needed for immediate threats and then pushed back when those uh, security threats recede. And then MONUSCO is not encouraged to work with the government in solving these, these problems in, in, at a deeper level. And of course, MONUSCO can only do so much itself. And so it does have a mandate, but it's very hard to implement that when the government is, is playing this kind of game with you. So, so it's, it has not been impressive, but I certainly understand where they are. Uh, I would just uh, add to that, Doug. The, there's been a, and these are small steps, and uh, one looks at the UN with that perspective that small steps sometimes are significant, at least in their, in their world. Uh, you know, Minuso got a new head in uh, the end of last year, uh, so just less than six, six months ago. And it's been interesting to note a slight difference in tenure. They've been putting out v reports under Minusco's cover on the human rights situation in the Congo, particularly political climate. So they're being a, a stronger stance. Now that's not very much in the grand scheme of things, but for the UN, that's actually, not many of their missions do that type of thing. So there's been, uh, so Ambassador Siddiqui, I would have to say he's been doing, he's within the limits that he's confined to, very, some very telling things, and if you will, witnessing to validating that it's not just political opponents or others who are that it's actually the UN making, and the, the counts that he's come, uh, come up with, with the number of incidents, uh, if you take that as a baseline that meets rigorous UN uh, vetting, and there are probably many more that aren't counted, 
are, are to me, very, very, very telling on, on the trend lines there. Uh, the gentleman standing there. <coughs> Hi, uh, Jay Babu, Congo Diaspora Network. So I have a couple of questions, actually. Um, the first one is going to be straightforward. So uh, the first one is actually, uh, is there any clear sanctions that's already established right now, just in case uh, Kabila doesn't want to leave power? Like some clear guideline on the, sanction, on the sanctions are going to be applied to him, just in case uh, he just want to hang around there and you know um, keep doing what he's doing to the people. And then the second thing, my question is actually, I'm asking, the Congolese people are not the one that you guys knew 10 years ago or 15 years ago. So let's say that today, the Congolese people pretty much stand up and really act accordingly, you know, on the field. We all know that, you know, because, uh, you know, we've been through uh, different situations in the past in the Congo where, you know, young people got arrested, killed, and it's keep going on and on. But um, we know that the Congolese people right now have uh, a different direction they want to take. And the direction they want to take, we all know that at least us, you know, Congolese in the diaspora, communicate with some of the people back there. We know that it's not going to be, it's not going to be pretty. So we just want to know if we get to that point, what side you guys are going to be on? Okay. Thank you. You know, I, I understand there is a sanction regime in place that mostly has to do with. Um, uh, mineral extraction uh, in the east and uh, issues of, uh, of blood minerals and things like that. But that doesn't strike me as particularly uh, uh, effective or that uh, I don't know how much of it is implemented. But I do know that there's a lot of talk right now uh, in, in DC and among donors in, in the, the west about having more pointed sanctions uh, uh, on, on incumbents in the regime and top people in the regime, in the government, in the military in terms of their assets abroad, in terms of travels and things like that. So I, I don't know how far along that is and whether they would actually uh, implement that. And I'm sure you guys have much more on that. Yeah, let, let, me, let me touch that up here. Um, in, in fact, there are sanctions that are applicable. There are executive orders that are already out there applicable to the Congo. And, and those could be modified to take into consideration the current Kabila regime. So it's really a question of political will in the United States right now. And as Dr. Engelbert has, has mentioned, there is now a significant amount of, of uh, effort, or, or certainly in the, uh, in the NGO community, to push Congress for uh, implementing sanctions. There is a lot more of, of an interest in the Senate and in the House, and in, even within the, uh, the, the executive branch, to actually consider sanctions. And so I think that this is something that is, it's really only a question of political will. It's, uh, and, and that will seems to be breaking down to, to avoid sanctions. So I think, I think it's a real possibility. I think that for the first time, I'm actually optimistic that it might happen. You know, for, for the second part of your question, I, you know, on which side are you guys going to fall on? I, I'm an independent scholar, right? So I don't work for the government, or, so I, 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 I don't fall on any side. But I think your question uh, hints at a, 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 an important thing. I think quite a few Congolese, both opponents in the diaspora and government, uh, uh, people are not sure what what the West or the U.S. will do, and there's quite a bit of expectation that maybe you can get away with things, and that in the end, push comes to shove, you know, uh, nothing will happen. And so, 
I think that what you say captures a certain uh, expectation that I've, I've noticed in Congo, and that you know, are the local counterpart to the fact that we are not consistent all the time. Let, let me let me add something to that because I think your question is a is a is a is a short one but a very important one. Um, coming from an organization called United for Africa's Democratic Future, my bias is towards free and fair elections and democracy. What does that really mean? For me, free and fair elections and democracy have many different forms. It doesn't have to be the US model. Uh, Africa has grown up with traditions completely different from those in the United States and in, and in Europe. Uh, but, but the same thing is that you know, when you parse democracy down to its most basic element, you're really talking about government accountability. The people in office <coughs> have an obligation to promote the benefit of the people. That's why they're there. That's why they should be there. So from my perspective, um, when you say what side should, should you be on, and I, when I, see, I, I think when you mean you, you mean the United States or Europe or, or maybe my foundation. I don't know. Um, but I am for democracy, free and fair elections, and the capacity building that allows, ultimately, the Congolese and all African countries to, to manage their own affairs in a, in a way in which they're held accountable to the people. That produces, historically, the best results for, for the population at large, creates better markets, creates better security, creates better health, increases education, more infrastructure. That's what, that's what the side I'm coming down on. To uh, follow up on the sanctions question, what do you think about the role of the Would you World Bank? Identify ba yourself, please. Excuse me. Identify yourself. Who are you? Oh, oh, uh, Adam Falkoff. Um, what do you think the role of the World Bank and the IMF should be in uh, sort of driving Kabila out of office? I know that's one of his biggest fears: is that the World Bank and the IMF will sort of turn off the spigot. And uh, second question I have is. It seems like Matata is continually working against the Kabila government. Why do you think Kabila has kept Matata around for so long? So I'll start with the second part. So uh, Prime Minister Matata Ponyo is, uh, seems to be distinct from the core regime and the, the presidency. And you know, he, he appears like more of a technocrat and you know, he's, he's implemented some reforms and like the bankerization of, of uh, civil service salaries and has pushed for some degree of budget transparency. And um, um, I think the donors like him better. And, and Kabila has kept him in office what, since 2012 now. I don't think, you know, even though he, he seems to be somewhat autonomous at times from Kabila, I, I think it's, it's an act to a large extent. And I think there's a certain duality there where you have a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde kind of thing where Matata Ponyo is the, um, the technocratic decent side of the regime and gets a lot of benefits, legitimacy from donors. And so then, you know, say, listen, you know, we're, we're making contracts transparent. Yes, a few contracts have not been made transparent and that, you know, that's the presidency and then he will tour the, the capitals and come to, to DC and, and say, you'll see what he can do. And so they're kind of playing this double game there. And I, I do think that to some extent, when at the end of the day, it benefits Kabila, his, his, his appearance of more tec technocratic autonomy. So I don't subscribe to the idea that he's necessarily um, a, a turn on in Kabila's side. Now, the World Bank and the IMF, my understanding is that they, they do not do political conditionality, that, that the bank cannot make a lending or program uh, conditional upon politics, that it's beyond the, the letters of agreement of the bank. 
Um, now certainly, you can then fall things in, under some sort of good governance agenda, where, which, which might overlap with politics. But I suspect that my understanding, but I could be wrong, is that the bank and the IMF have much less uh, leverage there uh, in terms of uh, uh, regime than do bilateral donors or, or in terms of multilateral, the European Union. I agree with Pierre's response on the, uh, on the, the World Bank and the IMF. I think that's just not something that they're going to get involved in except to the extent that ultimately there are financial issues that come up within their ambit that they then will, will get involved in. Unfortunately for Congo, there's so much, so little free uh, private <laughs> sector investment that it's, that it's very difficult to, to move them one way or another because it's mostly all uh, grants. Uh, on the other hand, uh, with respect to Matata, I agree completely with, with Pierre. I would put it this way. He is constantly walking a fine line. On the one hand, he knows he's a technocrat, and he, he knows what's right and what's wrong. He's been very, very helpful uh, to the business community, and he has set up commissions to examine particular problems within the government, and he's solved things. So he's been very popular to the West, and I think that he's appreciated for that technical capability. And let's face it, I mean, he's kept the inflation rate at a very, very remarkable uh, uh, rate since he's, he's before when he was Minister yes, of Finance. Yeah. yeah. So, He's been very successful for the West. On the other hand, I do not think for a second that he's also not appreciated for Kabila, by Kabila for other things. And he's constantly going, walking that fine line, never trying to stray too far from, from, from the center. Okay. He's, he's got a tough job, I think. Okay. Um, Hi, this is Vivian Sequera, Corporate Counsel in Africa. Question for Rick. Uh, could you comment on uh, the recent announcement of the sale of Freeport to China Mali and uh, what the consequence is going to be for the DRC as a whole? Uh, quest second qu uh, issue is a question for um, the professor. Uh, I have not seen anything in the press about uh, the, the nationality of the uh, presumed uh, candidate of the opposition. I mean, according to Congolese law, I believe that you have to have a mother and a father that is Congolese, and Katumbi doesn't have that case. How do you respond to that? And then, Peter, I mean, what I would call the Congolese slide to make it more catchy, how long before the sanctions really hit? Excuse me, I'm sorry. The, you know, slippage, but I think yeah. Congolese slides is a little catchier, but how long before you really uh, hear the sanction taken okay. effect? Yeah. Take well, let me start off with the uh, Freeport uh, sale um, to the Chinese company. Um, for me, it's actually having spent six years at that mine site and, and, and seeing its growth, it's, it's actually quite devastating. Um, Freeport McMoran put in place probably their best managed mine anywhere in the world. It had the lowest cost of production. It hired 9,000 uh, employees and countless other indirect uh, subcontractors that all had uh, uh, tremendous uh, increases in, in, in wages, and it was a, a, a real uh, spotlight for the Freeport pantheon of, 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 uh, of, of, of companies. And I, I think that um, its sale is a direct result of two things. Um, from a practical financial perspective, the balance sheet after the Plains Oil acquisition several years ago was devastating, and when you add $20 billion to the Freeport uh, uh, balance sheet, um, they had to, they, they were told by their bankers, you gotta reduce the debt. 
So that is, that is one reason why they started looking at selling a number of their assets. And, and over the past year, they've sold somewhere around the $4.5 billion worth of, of assets. By far and away, the most productive of them was the Teki Fungurume mine in Congo. Um, the other reason, which I think is absolutely not to be forgotten, and, and since I was responsible for, for compliance, overseeing the compliance operation in, uh, in Congo, I know something about this. Um, Freeport knows very, very well that the US Department of Justice is increasing its enforcement action on FCPA violations. I am telling you that is, is, I left there only about a year or so ago. Their compliance program was second to none. I mean, it was, it was spectacular, and the fights that we had with the government were basically over FCPA issues where we could only do certain things with our payments. I think that the concern that Freeport had is that it was becoming increasingly more difficult to do business in Congo as time went by. So when you add the balance sheet to the real pain in the neck factor that was impacting their day-to-day -day operations, it became a much easier thing for them to do because no one can sit here and say they know what's going to happen in the, in the coming 18, 12 to 18 months. So the overwhelming need to raise cash for the balance sheet, um, if, if, if you take a mine which has as much life of mine available as this one at 3 to 5% copper, which is the, the grade, which is which second to none in the world, really, then you would say, why would you sell this thing? Well, you'd sell it to raise money, but you'd sell it because you, you, you can't do business like you want to do business in that environment. And those two things go together. And so um, what's it going to mean for the, for the country? I think it's devastating. I think it's an absolute tragedy that the country could not hold on to an American company that was a shining light. I know from my, my contacts back at, at, at Tanky now, they're devastated that they're not a part of a US company. They, they won't be, after the sale is finalized, part of a US company anymore. They're devastated because they took pride in the fact that their safety records, their, their education benefits that they got, they're putting their kids through school, is going to be in question. They have no idea what's going to happen in the future. And they have seen Chinese companies operating in Congo. They're worried. And um, I think that's the, that's the result. The result is you've taken what is really a, a proud moment, and you've, you've diluted it considerably. Do you want to tackle the question yeah. on citizenship? Yeah, quick, quickly on that, too. I mean, when you make decent money, you can, you can put up with a certain degree of harassment. But when you have harassment and uncertainty, then, you know, I mean, a lot of businesses think twice about that. And then, uh, so you can see the consequence for the Congolese of this kind of, of policy. And, and certainly the Chinese don't have the same record. So um, it's, it's a very good question. Now, the whole nationality, I'm, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with that, that kind of stuff. I'll be very honest with you. As you know, questions of people's origins easily degenerate in Africa and Congo into issues of autochthony and, and politics of exclusion. So in general, it makes me very uncomfortable to go there. I assume you're referring to Katumbi's, Katumbi's mixed legacy. And, and to some extent, the government has not brought that up yet. Yet, maybe they will as, as the next thing. And maybe Kabila himself is not on very solid ground in that respect, and so therefore might not go there right now. But I, that's all I can say about it, and I, and I hope it doesn't go there, because can in I other countries it's been catastrophic. I, I would be a little stronger on that, because I, I actually have looked into this because it's been an issue that has come up. I do not believe there is actually anything in any Congolese law that requires you to have a, a, uh, both a Congolese mother and a Congolese father. This is something that has been created as sort of a, as a, as a, as a narrative to try and eliminate those people who didn't 
and Kutumbi being the most important. So I, I think it's fiction that there is an actual law. And I would defy President Kabila to come up with a law that says, here's the law that says, if you have a Congolese mother and a uh, non-Congolese father, you're excluded, you're, you're exempt. And, and the fact that it hasn't been brought up and that they've come up with this mercenary story instead of something that could, could actually be a lot more logical um, tells me that the law doesn't exist. It's a lot easier to say, well, you're disqualified because you've got a non-Congolese father instead of making up 500 American mercenaries, it seems to me. Uh, and to answer the, your, the final part of your question, Vivian, that you addressed to me on the slippage, my, my argument I've been making for some time has been the wait until November uh, or December to, to declare what we already know is happening is losing uh, that much time and gifting it to the people who are, uh, who are doing violence to the Congolese constitution, the will of the people. Because we already know if you were serious, if you really meant to leave office, first, he's never said he was staying, but he's never said he was leaving. Just declare, if you are going to respect, just declare, I will respect the constitution and you know, on the 20th, uh, you can see my you know, jet trail out of here on the, on the 20th of December. Uh, declare it and then follow through. Fund, as Pierre pointed, fund the Electoral Commission last year. Don't scream this year that it has no resources. Don't, and send your Election Commission uh, president touring Rothschild saying, I don't, with his you know, coffee uh, cup around saying, I don't have any money. Well, you should have been funded last year. Remember, in the last several years, the, the budget, the declared budget of the country has actually grown exponentially. The economic, now it hasn't been distributed, the retrocession, et cetera, hasn't occurred, but the central budget has actually grown. But none of it has been passed over. So and now you send the guy to Washington as he was you know, a month ago with his little coffee can saying, I don't have money, I don't have resources, et cetera. True, but you know, go to the, you know, the, uh, the Palais de la Nation with that cup is, is my view. So, the, the point is, I think now is the time to begin talking about these targeted sanctions. His intent is already clear in the actions not taken, the acts of omission, or just speak just as loudly as the, any acts of commission uh, on that. Okay, gentleman next to you. Uh, wait for the mic, please. Uh, I'm Steve from Western Maryland. Uh, my question is about China's uh, infrastructure exchange for mineral, mineral resource. Uh, could you please comment on this project? Thank you. I'll let you I'll let um, If I understood the question correctly, it's you want uh, uh, me to comment on China's mineral infrastructure project in Congo? Uh, infrastructure exchange for mineral resource. Yeah, okay. I, it's, it's an excellent question. Thank you for asking it. Um, <clears throat> I think the issue here is really one of transparency. I think the big concern that many people have is that these projects are put in place and no one really knows what the terms are. So ultimately, at the end of the day, you've got infrastructure projects that are being undertaken. You don't exactly know what's being given in return and what those terms are. So it's the fact that they're not transparent casts suspicion on just about all of them. Because you know, certainly under the uh, uh, Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, all payments to the government from extractives, meaning mining companies, oil and gas companies, should be, should be publicized so that you know exactly what's going to the government. Under these deals, that never happens. So you really don't know what the, the terms of the deals are. So it casts suspicion over the entire 
industry. So the Chinese deals, frankly, are viewed very cynically by most people in the West because we simply don't know what they say. One more question, the lady in the back. Yeah. Hi, I'm Tatiana Mosso from uh, Voice of America. Um, I have a question about the sanctions. You said that you hope that they will work in this case, but what if we are in a case like Pierre Kurunziza in Burundi? The international community said that we are going to take sanctions. They condemned that he was re-elected, let's say re-elected. So if Kabila maintains the power like he's do, he would like to do, let's say he would like to do, he's trying to make it, what will be, what will be the, the action of the international community? What can we hope? Thank you. You want to start? I don't, I don't know much about oh, that. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think it's a great question because it, it talks about the continuity of pressure to get Kabila to, to quote, do the right thing. Um, you know, if sanctions are not successful, uh, I, I really don't know what the next step is. And this is what I talked about the gentleman who, who was sitting in front here. Um, my fear is that if sanctions aren't successful and the, the ta round table concept is, is, is not successful, then, then you're going to leave it to the people of Congo, which is probably where it, it, it needs to be anyway, um, for them to make their decision as to what they're going to do. And my fear is that sensing what's going on in Kinshasa and in Lubumbashi right now, that you're looking at, at, at a violent situation, which I think can be avoided if, if uh, the international community and Kabila can agree on a, a, a way for him to step down. So I think the sanctions are simply one step more than what's been given before, which is basically John Kerry saying you need to leave, the Europeans saying you need to leave, UN, uh, President Obama, and then you're taking it one step further to sanctions. After that, I think, I, I think you're out of options. Certainly there's not going to be any military intervention. That's not, that's not uh, that doesn't seem to be uh, Reasonable. Well, I, I, let me pick up that part. I would respond by saying, what sanctions on Burundi? The fact is we haven't tried, we've condemned endless reams of paper declarations, but there are no real sanctions. Uh, so in a sense, you, can, you can't say sanctions haven't worked because they haven't really been tried. Uh, in, I would argue in, in the Congo, the sanctions, there are sanctions that can be put in place to make, put pressure on the, on the regime itself. Travel visas, you know, Jeanette, public knowledge, uh, go shopping every month. Well, let's cut the shopping trips, visa ban uh, to Europe. Uh, enter shopping, she's going to have to go to the, to the market in Kinshasa. Uh, the uh, assets, look at the Panama Papers, uh, Janet's, uh, holdings abroad, let's freeze those. And those of other key members of the regime. Life becomes a little more uncomfortable when you can't send your kids school fees to London or Paris or, or wherever. Then the kids have to come home. Uh, they're not gonna be happy. Your domestic life suffers. And so there are all sorts, and then ultimately, it is the decision I agree with, Rick, it's going to be, it may, uh, we may not want it, we hope it doesn't get there, it will be in the hands of the Congolese but sanctions will also cut off the resource flow to the regime to hire its mercenaries, 
pay the Republican Guard to protect the president, in which case that balances the playing field a little more for the people when the people, if they're forced to act. Peter touched on a very important point because I don't think it was fully appreciated. Um, the sanctions that are being talked about are personal sanctions. They're sanctions directed against individuals within the regime for their participation in anti-democratic efforts. And it would be the visa sanctions and, and, and account freezes or, or uh, audits or things that, that definitely would make life unpleasant for those people that are currently in power now that seek to cling to power um, unconstitutionally. And, that's, and that's, that's something that does have an, an impact. But your question as to what happens if they're unsuccessful, I, I think it's, it's in the hands of the people at that point. Again, uh, thank you, everyone, for one of the things we try to do that I know is end on time to respect your time. So thank you, everyone, for joining us. And please join me in thanking Pierre Engelberg and Rick Gettleman.